When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am Liv, your host, and that woman who gets pretty heated about these things. 
I hope you all enjoyed last week's live episode from the Vancouver Fan Expo. I'm really happy with how it went, but also I somehow am only just getting over this cold and my voice is basically back to normal, but it still sounds like a little bit weird. So it was really helpful to have that to post for you guys. Somehow that's one of the first times having a cold has thrown me off, even though I've been doing these episodes at the last minute for the entire time I've had this podcast. I've been lucky, I guess. Anyway, we're back into the swing of things and therefore back to our friend Aeneas. A quick announcement though, I just thought I'd let you guys know that I've updated the tiers on my Patreon. Mostly I just added new tiers and made them named in a much more entertaining fashion, but there's some added little extras you can now access should you be in the position to donate a little bit more to the podcast. I'll also be releasing a full-length Patreon episode all about ancient Greek theater. I'm going to record it today about the festival it was performed at, the theater itself, the stagecraft, and really any and everything about the entire concept of the theater in ancient Greece. It was originally going to be a quick mini episode, but it turns out I have so much to say. It's weird for me, I know. (laughs) Anyway, you current patrons can look forward to that, or if you're considering signing up, check out my updated tiers. Now, where were we? Back with the Romans, or not yet Romans, I should say with Aeneas and his men, who've landed on the lands of Carthage, a Phoenician city that's become, or will become, far more powerful than Phoenicia itself. A city founded and run by a woman, by a queen, Dido. She's a badass. Where we last left Aeneas, he and another guy had been made invisible as they spied on the Carthaginians. But others from Aeneas's fleet had survived and arrived to speak with the queen, Dido, and they didn't yet know that Aeneas and the others had also survived. So after listening for a while, Aeneas took the opportunity to reveal himself in an incredibly dramatic and showy way, moments after everyone in the room had praised him. Everyone wants to see him alive, and suddenly, bam, there he is. This is episode 73, not that damn horse again, The Aeneid, part three. And so, in an instant, Aeneas and the other man, Achates, reveal themselves to the room full of Carthaginians and the other group of Trojans who had survived the storm and were longing to see this very Aeneas alive. It's me, he yelled dramatically. Aeneas, the one you've just been talking about, here I am! Aeneas proceeds to really play up the tragedy that he believes has befallen him and the other Trojans. And I mean, sure, they've had a tough go, but he really plays it up. We've survived the storm that brought us here, he begins. We Trojans that have suffered such awful fates, catastrophes everywhere we've been. We poor Trojans with nothing left after how the Greeks left us to die in our homes. Oh, poor us. I mean, honestly, like they did have a really hard go of it. I will give them that. The Trojans have had a tough one. The Greeks were really awful to them. There's just something about how victimized and complainy Aeneas is. But you, he says finally to Dido, you've offered to share your city. How wonderful, how generous of you. He continues his praises for, well, ever, honestly. It's over the top. But then this is an ancient epic. 
So Aeneas goes on and on about Dido's generosity. Who are your parents? Parents of one so generous, he asks at a point. So you get the idea. But then he does finally pause his ramblings enough to give some handshakes and hugs to the men he's also discovered are alive and who've discovered that he, their general, their beloved Aeneas, is also alive. Meanwhile, though, Dido is standing there like, what the actual fuck? This dude just appeared, like, out of nowhere. She's being reasonable here and questioning how this happened. But then she finds herself falling right under his spell. Oh, what hardships he's faced. How have you suffered so much? She asks him. What is it that's pursuing you to such a degree? And then, well, in this translation, she asks Aeneas, quote, What power has driven you to these barbarous shores? Which is a weird choice in words, barbarous. Given this isn't Greek, it's a funny choice. It wouldn't be using the Greek word that just means foreign. It's actually Dido describing her people like that. I don't love it. But anyway, she asks that of Aeneas, the intention probably being simply to inquire how did they end up on these foreign shores. You are Aeneas, she confirms, the son of Anchises and Venus herself. Everyone has a habit of referring to Aeneas as goddess-born, but in this case Dido is specifically confirming that he is indeed this man, the son of Venus. Then she tells him about the time that a man came to her home in Sidon, back in Phoenicia, asking for help from her father. It was this man who told her and the others the story of the fall of Troy. He knew of you, she tells Aeneas. He praised the Trojans and only had good things to say. With that, she welcomes them all once more, telling them that fortune drove her to found her city here, and thus she's learned to help others in distress. She knows what it's like. Dido and the Carthaginians prepare a feast in honor of Aeneas, and to the other Trojans on the beaches, they send an absolutely absurd number of animals for them to kill and eat. It gets truly excessive, they list it out. As this is being prepared, Aeneas asks Achates, his companion, to go and get his son, Ascanius, who, well, I can't think of having heard that Aeneas had a son before this moment, so either I glossed over it accidentally, or this is truly the first reference to his having a son with him. And the references include a lot of fatherly affection and care for his child, even though we've barely heard of him. Aeneas also sends Achates to get a collection of gifts that they saved from Troy's ruin. Things that had belonged to Helen and to Priam's daughter, jewelry saved from the destruction of Troy. Meanwhile, the goddess of love is scheming. Venus, Aeneas's mother, is trying to figure out how best to use her other, more godly son, Cupid, the Roman name for Eros, to help her mortal son. She's worried. Worried that she can't trust Dido and the Carthaginians. You'll remember that the Carthaginians are beloved by Juno, and her goal at the very beginning of this story was to prevent, at any cost, Aeneas and the Trojans from reaching Carthage. I personally keep forgetting that, because they so easily landed on Carthage at the beginning that it seems pointless to have had her try to keep them from there. But Venus hasn't forgotten. She's worried that Juno will use the Carthaginians to hurt Aeneas, so she's coming up with a plan. She will have Cupid disguise himself as Aeneas's son, Ascanius, 
who we've just been told exists. And together, the gods of love will use godly skills to have Dido fall deeply, truly madly deeply in love with Aeneas, like magically in love, the deepest kind. Dido will be, quote, captive in her love for Aeneas. Here's what we'll do, she lays out to Cupid. Achates is on his way to get Aeneas's son, Ascanius, from the camp, but I'll go there first. Having Ascanius fall asleep, I'll carry him off to somewhere safe where he'll stay asleep as we continue our plan. You'll appear in his place, pretending to be Ascanius as he brings all the gifts from the fall of Troy to Carthage, where Aeneas surely intends to give them as gifts to the queen. When Dido, at the feast, after a few too many glasses of wine, gives you a big motherly hug, you'll, quote, breathe the secret fire of love into the queen and bewitch her with its poison. Venus's plan, while seemingly pretty innocuous, couldn't possibly sound more dramatic. She's causing Dido to fall in love with Aeneas, which is manipulative and not great, but you can really tell the implications in the language used to describe the way they'll cause her to fall in love. Talk of poison and captives. It seems it's not just love, but something a bit more sinister that they have in mind for Dido, who, I remind you, is definitely not one of the most tragic figures in mythology. Everything goes as planned. Venus flies off with little Ascanius, who I think we're to assume is quite young, and Cupid disguises himself as the boy, taking his place as they arrive in the palace of Carthage, where he finds his father and the other Trojans sitting with the queen. Cupid, as Ascanius, is very cute and childlike with his father, clinging to Aeneas, giving him hugs. All the while, we're told the doomed Phoenician, meaning Dido, with not at all a menacing descriptor, watches on, gazing at the boy as he interacts with his hot hero father. It seems to me that Dido likely could have fallen for Aeneas even without the help of Cupid and Venus, but they didn't give her a chance. As soon as Cupid is finished fawning over his father, who's really his brother, he turns his attention to Dido. This very young boy approaches Dido, who takes to him immediately. She's got that motherly instinct that I will clarify is not inherent to women, but does in this case apply to Dido. She takes Ascanius, who's really Cupid, onto her lap and gives him a hug, protectively, we're told. Virgil really plays up what's coming for Dido, too. There are so many wildly ominous statements, like here where we're told Dido doesn't know the god that's sitting in her lap, about to bring her great tragedy. Anyway, we're not going for a surprise when it comes to her fate, it seems, and Virgil will use all the depressing descriptors and vague notes of horror to tell you that there is absolutely something horrific in store for Dido because of what Venus and Cupid are doing right now. Cupid, while cuddled up on Dido's lap in the form of Aeneas's son, settles in to slowly erase from Dido's mind the love that she had for her late husband, Sicaeus whose tragic death forced her from her home and who she still had great devotion to, and putting in its place a, quote, living passion in a heart and soul long unaccustomed to love. Truly could not make it sound more tragic, just could not. 
That night, they all celebrate, drinking wine and telling stories of the Trojan War and all its players. Dido can't get enough. She's constantly asking to hear more of the men that fought there and their fates, who they were in life. But then she asks, just as one would expect in an epic that closely mirrors my main man Odysseus, or in this case his Roman name Ulysses, and his Odyssey, Please, tell me about what happened to your people and all the tragedies. Tell me about your wanderings, where you've been over these last seven years. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
what a tragic story I have to tell. Aeneas laments like a broken record. We get it, dude. It sucked. Oh, how the Greeks destroyed Troy and all its wealth. Who wouldn't tear up telling this story, he says. Not a Myrmidon or even one of Ulysses' soldiers could tell it without choking up. Oh, it's getting late, he says. The stars are telling us to go to sleep. But oh, if you'll have me tell it now, I will. He can't pass up the opportunity to continue talking. Not even if it's so late that they should be sleeping and his story is epically long. No, he'll tell it now, Aeneas reassures everyone there. Aeneas begins way back. You'll need to recall all the way back to my episodes on the end of the Trojan War. Something about a horse and a heel, you remember. Aeneas begins his story with the horse, the giant horse built by the Greeks on the instruction of Minerva, the giant horse which many of them hid inside while the others sailed their ships to hide at a nearby island, so we, the Trojans, would believe they'd given up and finally left us alone. Oh, but they hadn't. He recalls tragically, they only led us to believe they'd had the mercy to just let us be and stop their attack on our shores. Let me be clear here. I am not on the Greek side. They were awful and totally like destroyed a city. It's just that Aeneas is like really whiny. He recalls the first Trojan man to suggest they bring the gift of the horse into the city's walls and the fight that erupted. The debate as to whether it would be their savior or their downfall. Should they build a fire beneath the horse's belly instead or stab it through with spears? It's then... Aeneas tells his rapt audience that Laocoon comes running up with others, speaking reason to the crowd. Do you really think they've left us alone? he asks frantically. Do you really think they've just left us a gift and gone? Laocoon isn't fooled and continues trying to convince his fellow Trojans not to trust the Greeks and certainly not to trust their so-called gift of this enormous wooden horse that could definitely fit a whole slew of Greeks inside it based on the size and the shape and the hollow sound it makes when he throws his spear into its side. Tragic Aeneas throws in some hindsight here, noting that if only the fates had allowed them, they would have opened up the horse right there and seen the Greeks hiding within, if only they'd been allowed to do that. Then Troy would still be standing even now. But that isn't what happened, because, Aeneas tells the crowd, at that moment there was the sound of cries and a group of shepherds from the countryside appeared. With them they brought a man, with his hands tied, a stranger who, now that he knows what he knows, Aeneas concludes that this man was hell-bent on bringing the downfall of the Trojans. But at the time, the man was frantic. He convinced the Trojans that had found and captured him that he'd been abandoned by the Greeks, that he was seeking any lands who would take him since he wasn't welcome with the Greeks. Worse than that, they seek to kill him, he tells the Trojans. This man, Sinon, tells the Trojans that he is indeed Greek, but that he has a story to tell. He tells them a story about vengeance and what the other Greeks did to him. How against him cunning Ulysses was and the lengths he went to to ruin Sinon. He ends his appeals by saying that 
Should the Trojans wish to kill him simply because he's Greek, he won't deny it. But if they did, Ulysses would be happy, and Menelaus and Agamemnon wouldn't shed a tear. He's saying all the right things to make the Trojans believe him, basically telling exactly the right story to lull them into a false sense of security. And it's working. The Trojans ask to hear more of this man's story. So the Greek, Sinon, tells the Trojans the rest of his story. He tells them that the Greeks had been told by the oracle that, just as they'd done when they sailed to Troy in the first place, back at Aulis, just as they'd sacrificed Agamemnon's own daughter, Iphigenia, for good winds, they would have to sacrifice another person for the winds on their way home. Shock ripples through the group, and Sinon the Greek continues. He tells them that, ultimately, the seer with them agreed it was he who was to be silenced, though he does this, it's said, at the urging of Ulysses, who seems to be quite the main man-villain in this story. And so, this man, Sinon, was to be sacrificed, and all was prepared and readied for it, but he stole away in the night and escaped the Greek sacrifice. Of course, with a story like this, the Trojans believe Sinon and spare his life. How could they not? He's so believable, and he's told a story so tragic and so horrific on the part of the Greeks. Surely he must be telling the truth. This is what Aeneas tells the audience that they believed then. That's why they spared him. And that Priam, the king himself, came to speak with Sinon to give him some kindness and to ask, But seriously, what is up with this horse? Okay, he's a little more kingly and well-spoken than that, but the implication is there. Seriously, what is with this horse? What is it? Why is it here? Is it for the gods? Is it a war machine? Is it a gift? This launches Sinon into yet another story about how awful Ulysses is. He is this man's main target. It's getting to be a little bit much. My main man would never do all of this, but whatever. He tells the Trojans that nearing the end of the war, Ulysses and another man raided the Temple of Minerva, just really fucked shit up, and destroyed shit and took the Palladium, a wooden statue that I'll talk about in another episode, from the temple into their own camp. And oh, what a wild mistake that was, which, like many things that are done in these stories, I mean, it seems like an obviously bad idea, and I'll admit, fine, Ulysses did actually do this part, but some of the other stuff doesn't seem like him. But still, there is some subterfuge happening here. Sinon tells the Greeks about these horrible actions of Ulysses and the wrath of the goddess, that it quickly became clear that she was fucking pissed. There was lightning and it was crazy cinematic because apparently they could see her with her spear and shield and everything and the image of her flashed with the lightning three times. Bam, Minerva. Bam, bam. Oh, I so worked up there this. Well, Sinon tells the Greeks that this, quite rightly, scared the living fuck out of the Greeks. The seer with them, the same one that had them sacrifice Sinon, tells the Greeks that this is a clear sign that they will never take Troy unless they return home first, and that they simply, they must take to the seas and head home. Sinon then tells the Trojans that that was it. The Greeks have left, they've returned to their homes, and that they will return eventually to finally take Troy. But before they left, they built the horse in penance to the goddess as their big fat sorry for all the fucked up shit they did. 
so that, you know, she wouldn't absolutely fucking decimate them on the way home, which she certainly would have done if they hadn't given her such an impressive, I'm sorry, note. But, Sinon finishes, the thing about this horse that's been made for Minerva, well, because it's an effigy for the gods, if any harm is at all is done to it, she would bring utter ruin on the Trojans. If, though, it were brought into the city walls of Troy, he says, oh, then quite the opposite. The Trojans would be able to bring the fight to the Greeks, and it would be the Greeks facing the utter ruin. And that was it, Aeneas says to the audience at Carthage, as he concludes Sinon's story of the horse. That was what sealed our fate, what caused our ruin, something that not even Achilles could do. We did it to ourselves. But then, Aeneas adds, something happened that was far more terrifying than anything we could have imagined. Out of nowhere, our priest, the man who'd warned against the Greeks and their gift all along, Laocoon, was preparing a sacrifice to Neptune, went out of the quiet, tranquil sea. Two enormous snakes headed for him. They broke the surface of the water, the water foaming angrily around them. They hissed loudly, and fear filled everyone in sight. They reached the shore, and they came at Laocoon, and not only him, but at his two sons, too. They wrapped him themselves around the man and the boys. We tried to get the snakes off of them, hacking at their bodies. Laocoon himself is doing all he can, but their slimy, wet, snaky bodies wrap around the man's neck. No matter what we did, we couldn't free them, and soon we knew there was no point. They were a bloody, horrific mess. The snakes, when they'd done their job, slithered off and into the temple of Neptune, where they coiled up, suddenly calm. This, this action of the serpents once they'd killed Laocoon and his children, this turned the people against him. They believed that because the snakes went to rest in the temple, that Laocoon had deserved what had happened because of what he'd done to the horse when he'd stuck his spear in it. They believed that this was clear and obvious proof. The horse was meant for Minerva, and in order to make her happy, they must bring it inside the city, just as Sidon the Greek had told them. And so, we did exactly that. We opened the walls of Troy, exposed to the inner sanctum of the city, to the world around it. Opened the walls so that for so long, had prevented the Greeks from gaining any ground against us. Aeneas, once more, quite dramatically, tells in detail, as the horse is brought into the city, how long it took to rope it up, when they began to pull, how every time they had to take a break and pulling it deeper inside the city of Troy, how it would clang with the sound of armor. How they were so caught up in keeping the goddess happy that they continued pulling it, ignoring the signs that something wasn't as it seemed. When, finally, it was deep inside the city, as far as it would go, Cassandra was there, the princess of Troy. She cried out. Of course she did. The woman never was to be believed. Aeneas tells the Carthaginians how she cried out her prophecies, 
but that it was the gods too who caused her not to be believed even then. And so we Trojans, on our last day as real, complete Trojans, decorated the city for celebration. Oh, nerds, thank you all for listening. As we make our way through the Aeneid, I'm going to be peppering in some other stories here and there, just to keep you all on your toes, and because the Aeneid isn't quite at the Odyssey levels of excitement, so for my sake and yours, we're going to mix it up as we go. I want Aeneas to be as exciting as my main man, but no one can compare, and that's not his fault. Anyway, as per usual, I'd love if you would rate, review, subscribe, the whole thing. Follow me on social media where I try to be entertaining and sometimes succeed. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's all at MythsBaby. You're all the best. I am Liv. And of course, I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God, 
my friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.